0: I am thrilled to bring to you God's Word this morning. We're starting a new sermon series in the book of 1 John. Chapter 1, the first four verses. This will serve, hopefully, as a way of overview and whet our appetites for the rest of this book. So if you would turn there in your Bibles, 1 John, chapter 1, the first four verses, it'll also be projected overhead. Let me read this for us. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our joy may be complete. Oh, we'll start with that last verse, verse 4. This is the God-given purpose for why Apostle John even bothered to write this book, and it's actually the reason why we're going to start a study in this book, so that our joy may be made complete. This book is designed to deliver joy, complete joy, okay? Fullness of joy. Let me give some two qualifications up front, though, however, of how not to get joy, okay? Here's how you won't get it. First. You go after joy individually. Okay? You will never get complete fullness of joy if you go after it by yourself. It's uh, somewhat trendy these days that because with the rise of the internet and with everything online, that some of you in this room think that you put yourself in charge of your own spiritual life. See, you get to call all the whens, whys, hows, and whats of what's most beneficial and useful to you. You set up your own curriculum, your own plan of how you can grow spiritually the most. Sorry to tell you this morning, actually, that's not going to work for the fullness of joy. You cannot get fullness of joy individually. Apostle John said, our joy may be complete. Uh, ours. There's an ourness to our joy. The we's and the us's and the ours dominate this passage. All right, a second qualification or a second warning of how you will not get joy. You can't get it by yourself. Second, do not go after it directly. Do not go after it directly. I just want joy. I just want joy, so I'm going to pursue joy. You're never going to get joy. Okay, notice. Jesus never preached, never preached in one of his most famous sermons. It's called the Beatitudes. Blessed, which the most basic rendition or translation of that is, if you want to be really happy, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after, what? What? Jesus says up front, you want to be really happy, really, really happy. Blessed, blessed. Really happy. If you want to be really happy, are those who hunger and thirst after blessedness? Are you really going to be happy because you pursue, pursue happiness? Jesus never teaches like that. He says instead, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Also, go figure. Joy, then, is a result. It's a byproduct. It's something that happens to you as you go after life with God and with the Son, Jesus Christ, verse 3. This morning, as we look upon this book, give you some background context, John The same author of the Gospel of John was probably, commentators say, uh, in between 80 to 90 years old. So let's just shoot for the middle. He's probably about 85 years old. Yesterday at a membership class, some people have the audacity in my presence to say, I can hear it, say, oh, I just turned 30. I feel so old. I'm like, what? I'm 46. I feel old, but in the presence of the apostle John, he would laugh. He would scoff. He's about 85 now. To this day, I have never met an idealistic 85-year-old man. An 85-year-old man is very different from a 25-year-old man. An 85-year-old man is very different from a 35-year-old man. You know why? Because all your illusions and delusions have been dashed. They become very, very realistic. You know, by age 85, you've kind of seen and tasted personally your share of sufferings. If anyone's 85 or 95 today, you've seen some world wars. You're no longer, your head is in the clouds, and you romanticize everything. And yet, and yet, this same old man says in verse 4, I'm going to write a book so that we could have complete joy. You know, the danger that as you get older is you just become so depressed or sullen or cynical. That's not Apostle John. He's not an idealistic romantic, and yet he speaks of complete joy. And you can hear his fatherly spirit throughout this book. My children, my children. That's how he addresses many people throughout this book. My little children. He has such affection and love as a father should. And one of the reasons why this book fell upon my conscience is that out of a father's love, he wants people to really know whether or not they are children of God. John himself has experienced such joy, such life with God, that he has, in effect, become an authority and an apostle to tell you whether or not your life or your joy is for real. Again, the reason why this book fell upon my conscience, I was thinking about something else about a month ago, but I realized as your pastor and praying through and really thinking about what would be... Best, I'm just asking God, what you know, laid upon my heart what would be best for our church in this next season. And here's what I came to. And First John, this is what First John does. John wants to give you tests of whether or not you're truly a child of God or not. You see, because as we launch two campuses by the grace and blessing of God, we've grown. And you see, many are churched, many are churched, but uh, fewer people in the church are actually Christian. Many can get cultured and do Christian things and speak Christianese, but not actually be converted. We can go through routines and rituals, but it's never real. Never real. So John here actually writes a whole book so that you could have complete joy as a byproduct and result of fellowship with God and his son Jesus Christ. And he gives a series of tests to see whether or not you're truly a child of God and have life with God. Now, I know this goes against every popular instinct or notion that, you know, when it comes to religion or spirituality, you should leave everyone alone. Everyone needs to find his or her own way. And the worst thing you can do in spiritual realms is tell someone else that, you know what, I think your experience of God is way off. It's not valid or it might be flat out wrong. We all cringe at that thought, don't we? And yet, this is exactly what the book of First John does. This morning, we want to launch into this series on four distinguishing signs of that, if you really have the life of God. Four distinguishing signs of life with God. First, first I would describe it the way that John describes it, is that you have to have both reality and experience. Reality and experience. Christianity refuses to be a religion only for the left-brained or the right-brained. Christianity refuses and does not fit to just people who tend to be analytical and logical or instinctive and intuitive. There are people in this room who are academics, and then there are other people in this room who are artists. All religions tend toward one or the other. Christianity refuses to be either. It's both. It's both. Oh, look at it with me. Verses 1 and 2. There's objective reality. There's objective reality. We heard this. We've seen the word of life with our eyes. We've looked upon and we touched. We touched him. We touched him. The word of life. The one who was always with God the Father from eternity past. Uh, And then if you're unclear about that, he repeats it in verse 3. We've seen and heard, and now we're just going to proclaim and want to pass along to you. Objective reality. Like There's reality tests, reality checks. Christianity is the last religion in which you say, I don't want to see, I don't want to look, I don't want to touch, I don't want to think. I don't care if it matches history or reality. I just want to close my eyes and take a blind leap of faith. You cannot become Christian that way. John says we're eyewitnesses. We are convinced Jesus is for real. He lived and he died and he rose again. And he's eternal God. And only through him you're going to have eternal life. And we have fellowship with him. We touched him. (laughs) It's based in reality. I mean, this week I read the news about an ultra-conservative pundit who used to deny that Sandy Hook, the school shootings... He used to say that that never happened. It was just a fantasy. It was a delusion. It was, th- it, was, it was something that people made up under a legal deposition now, as I understand. He had to recant and say, ah, uh, well, yeah, Sandy Hook must have really happened. And the way he excuses himself is, I went, underwent a mental psychosis. That's the way that this conservative pundit is trying to excuse himself from denying that Sandy Hook ever happened. He's trying to blame it on his mental health, his psychosis. You cannot be Christian if you don't have reality checks, objective reality. Here's second though. Then, Apostle John goes on and says, Well, it's also subjective. You'd better experience it too. It's not just historical data. It's not just logical. It's not just conclusive. It's not the most reasonable thing. No. Do you experience life with God? He calls it fellowship. And then verse 4, once again, the purpose is, do you ever taste and do you ever feel joy, even complete joy? In John chapter 17, once again, verse 3, the same author, Apostle John. And this is eternal life that they may know you. You, oh God. How do you know God? You got to know Jesus Christ, whom you, God, has sent. Two things once again. There's certain things you got to know. You just got to know some things. Second, their subjectivity. Objective is you got to know some things. Subjective experience is that. This is eternal life. My friends, eternal life is not just about its length. It's not just about its quantity. It's about its quality. It's about its quality. Same author who remembers and records Jesus Christ saying in John chapter 10, I came that they may have life and they might have life. How? How? What does Jesus say as a great shepherd? I came that my sheep would have life. And and that life is going to be what? Were you just waiting for the kingdom of heaven to come? So you're going to have life barely. You're going to have life begrudgingly. You're going to have life just dutifully. I'm just going to show up and do that. You're going to have life begrudgingly. What does Jesus say? I came that they might have life and might have it. Abundantly. Abundantly. He's talking about a quality of life even in this life, into the forever after. And when you have life with God and you have life with Jesus Christ and it's for real, it matches reality and it's it's experiential. Here's a second sign. Here's a second sign. Close enough for fellowship. Close enough for fellowship. Apostle John does not settle for I know God. Yeah, I'm kind of a spiritual person, and I know some things about God. I know about God, generally, and that's not what John says here. <laughs> look at look it real close. He doesn't say, I know a lot about God. He says, I have fellowship with God. Fellowship with God comes from the Greek word koinonia, koinonia. Koinonia, different translations would be that you share certain things in common. Fellowship or koinonia means that you are having communion. Koinonia means that you are so close and intimate that you could call it fellowship. You can call it fellowship. Here's a second sign, distinguishing sign, of life with God. My dear, dear friends and guests, can I ask you? Do you have have fellowship with God? Do you have this kind of relationship with God? It's very, very good and sobering at times to be self-reflective. I don't think you should do it all the time. But because we're going to go through 1 John... You should be self-reflective here. It is sobering and good to question. Do you ever question? Are you for real? Or do you just go to church? Is there anything personal between you and God? Is there interaction? Is it alive? Can you speak of or show how God is teaching you certain things? Can you describe how God is restraining you from certain things? Does God ever counsel and lead you into new things? Has God been forgiving and healing and setting you free from... Past things. Can you explain? Or have you experienced? Is this for real? Do you know that God listens to you when you pray? Do you have a sense upon your heart that he cares for you? That he absolutely looks after you and cares for you? That he is alive and well in your life? Do you have life with God? Or are you flatlining? Beep! Like your spiritual life. You can talk all you want, but just beep! Flatline. One-dimensional. One-dimensional. It's in effect dead. There is no life. You know, when You hear pastors or Bibles or small group people talk about like, oh, God has been teaching me this (laughs) and talking to me like this. And You hear this sermon right now and you're already like just, you're already faded. You're already already checking out because you're like, oh, that's nice for you. Uh, It seems like a postcard or a movie to me. It's very far off. Is that how you feel today? You know, I, I know this for certain that. Everyone in this room can be so vivid and clear about so many things. You can describe down to the minutiae detail about certain things. But when it comes to God, when it comes to God, hey, what's your life with God like? It's always vague. It's always fuzzy. And you catch it with Christian ease. Do you ever wonder why that's the case? Do you ever want to wonder why that would be the case? Do you ever wonder why you look at everything else in HD and stereo sound, but when it comes to God, it is absolutely vague. Oh, here's Apostle John. He says, I got fellowship with God. And in fellowship with God, you're really close. Just a couple weeks ago, Sonny and I, we didn't really get to celebrate our 17th anniversary. We've been married 17 years. But she is still a mystery to me. She's still mind blowing and attractive to me. There are a lot of things about her I still can't figure out. Last Sunday, we had a welcoming luncheon at Frontier Park. And a good friend, an old college friend of mine, was visiting all the way from Colorado. And he said, You know, Harold and Sonny, I might stop by the welcoming luncheon. I said, You're absolutely welcome. We got a taco truck. You're new. Come by. And in the middle of the welcoming luncheon, I holler out to Sonny in front of all the newcomers. It's too late for them. You see, they've already become members of our church. I say, hey, Sonny, is uh, so-and-so coming to the lunch? He said he's coming. And here's what Sonny said. This is verbatim. Well, if he does, he'll show up. If he doesn't, he won't. (laughs) Well, if he does, he'll be here. And if he doesn't, he won't one of the newcomers laughed out loud and kindly said well oh, that's so philosophical i gave this illustration at teacher service where my wife was at sonny was at and she came up to me after and she said harold i don't think you should share that illustration cuz it doesn't make sense what i said doesn't make sense <laughs> <laughs> i was like that's the boy that's the boy sonny that's why you're a mystery to me it didn't make any sense Here you go, son. You can watch it on the video. I'm using it right now. (laughs) She is Sonny. I'm Harold. She is woman. I'm a man. But there's so many other areas that I know her really well. And if you know your spouse really, really well, when you go on a business trip or some vacation trip, and uh, you walk into a hotel room, or you eat a certain food, or you watch a certain movie or play, the closer you get to your spouse, you instantly know what your spouse would say about that. Don't you? You instantly know what your spouse would feel about that. You instantly know how your spouse would react to that in that situation. The more you get to know your spouse, you get close enough, you know, you know. They're long-term, good friends all the way back from college. I don't know how they still come to this church. And they'll show up at a church meeting. And some of them will come to me after certain church meetings and say, Harold, I told them that I know you would have said this. I know you would have thought that. And usually they're dead on right. Now, what I'm describing right here, right now, my friends, this um, mind-melding like heart-sinking, soul-sharing dynamic is far more profound and rich in fellowship with God. Please make no mistake. To become a Christian and to live a Christian life does not mean, ah, oh, I'm just going to add certain things that Christian people should do and i got to subtract things that Christian people should not do. <laughs> I'm not quite sure if you're Christian yet. That is not Christian life. Listen close. Christian life is where you get to look at and live all of life through a new set of eyes. A new brain. A new heart. That's called fellowship with God. Close enough for fellowship. And everywhere you look, you start to see Sin and grace, light and darkness, creator, creature, heartbreak and hope and redemption everywhere. Why do you start seeing that everywhere? Because you start to see all of life through the very eyes of God. If you have fellowship with God, not only will I guarantee, but the Bible keeps talking about it. There are certain things that you used to like that now make you nauseous. If you really have life with God, there are certain things that used to dread and make you so afraid. We just sang it. We just sang it. You used to be just so afraid, so afraid, especially of suffering and death. You're no longer as afraid. The simple initial test that Apostle John offers up front as to whether or not you have life with God, whether or not you're a child of God, just simply goes like this Do you love what God loves, and do you hate what God hates? Koinonia. You share things in common. You have similar interests and passions. Do you love what God loves and do you hate what God hates? You see, this part you can't fake. Right? You just can't fake it. You can say all kinds of things. You can pretend all kinds of things. But I'm talking about in your heart. Do you love the loves that God has? And do you hate the hates that God has? Here's a third sign. Third sign. Enjoyment. Enjoyment. First was reality and experience. Second is actual fellowship. And third is enjoyment. Back to verse 4. John wrote these things so that you might have complete joy. Our joy may be made complete. So you enjoy things. Enjoy things. If I have a a brunch that's a business brunch meeting, uh, that brunch meeting will be very different than a brunch meeting with a dear old friend, will it not? Uh, The brunch meeting I have with a business partner or with a session or officers or leaders of our church will somewhat, more or less, uh, you're not going to eat too well or digest that food. It's a It's about objectives and goals and bottom lines and unconsciously you try to hide it, but you're trying to figure out when will this meeting end. That's a business brunch meeting. When you're meeting with a really good friend, you don't care how long it's taken. There's no agenda. You just love the exchange back and forth. It's fellowship and you enjoy it. There's a back and forthness to it. Okay, here's how you know this morning Whether or not you actually have fellowship with God is that you don't treat God like an ATM. You don't treat God like an ATM. You only worship and pray to God like an ATM. If that's so, you don't have fellowship with God. You don't have fellowship with God. You're just doing business with God. You see, when your funds are low, when problems arise, crises arise, your family's not doing well, your kid is going crazy, then you have to go to the ATM. Because your spiritual power and resources are low. And you got to get from God what you need. You check in and you check out. You see, when you treat God like an ATM, you really have a very sporadic, random prayer life at best. You don't really have a personal, regular prayer life. You don't have a really regular worship life. Not at all. But if you really have fellowship with God. God is not an ATM to you. There's regular, consistent back and forth exchange and dare i say there's enjoyment <laughs> there's enjoyment to it john said i write these things to you so that what you would just get through christian life oh if you really have life with god and jesus Christ the son you can have complete joy Blaise Pascal, Blaise Pascal, the academic type, mathematician and scientist, had an extraordinary experience of the love of God one day. He scribbled notes of what happened to him, sold them inside his coat, and people found it after his death. Here's what he wrote, some of what he described. It's not up here, but here's what he wrote. Uh, Before what we read. This day of grace, 1654, from about half past 10 at night to about half after midnight. Uh, My friends, that's two hours. Two hours of extended, extraordinary experience of the love of God. Here's how he describes it. Fire. (laughs) Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. There are some things he knows. Not of the philosophers and scholars, there's a subjective experience. Security, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, greatness of the human soul, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from Him. Do you know that God is knowable? Do you know that God is experiential? Did you know that God wants to be enjoyed? What's your greatest purpose in life? Glorify God. Good answer. Good answer. You're not complete. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I don't glorify any of the generous, lavish hosts at our church. We have so many. I love coming to your homes. We sat at a fire pit on Wednesday night out in West LA. Thank you for all of you who come from so far away. We get fed, we drink fine drinks, we enjoy the company. Time is nothing. I don't glorify a cook or a chef by barely eating that food with a sullen face. I don't glorify a singer or an artist or performer by after the performance saying, hmm, you did your job. I glorify them sincerely because I so enjoy their good gifts and who they are. God is knowable. God has made himself manifest to us. So that our joy may be made complete. He's enjoyable. I've referred to this before. I'm very weak and undisciplined with prayer. My own private prayer. I think about a year and a half or two years ago, more for physical reasons. Because I can't run or play kind of like intense sports anymore. I just go walking. I go walking. And this has turned into literally for me. Every day, a time of walking with God, where I pray, hear a sermon, sing a song, I just clear my head, and I now, I'm at the rate of, which Sonny says, Harold, you're addicted to this, an hour, and an hour and a half a day. I got to get to about eight to 10,000 steps. And what I found is over the last uh, 18 months of regular, uh, consistent, uh, not just going to God like an ATM, um, walking around and kind of just talking to God, talking to God, and want to hear from God. You know, it's remarkable how much more frequent and how much more alarming are the visitations of God's Spirit upon my heart. How it's um, really hard to describe to you how this old tired heart gets to be so sure and feel the love of God for him. It's remarkable. And uh, I'm that weirdo at the park. If you ever come to Saddleback Park in Cerritos, I'm the guy um, who's raising an arm sometimes and singing in praise, or he looks like he fell, but he's actually just kneeling down because he's so overcome. Or if you come up close to him behind the sunglasses, he's crying, he's weeping. And I've missed these times for many, many years, but they become more frequent. And here's what I've discovered about God. He always wanted me to have this. He loves being enjoyed, he wants to manifest himself to me. Uh, I just got to walk with him a little more. Signs of life with God reality and experience. Second is fellowship. Third is enjoyment. Fourth, last, but last, last one. You can't contain it. You can't contain it. I'll say it as carefully as possible because I love you. If you can contain, you never want to speak about it, you never want to share it, you always hide it. If you can contain what you have with God in Jesus Christ, you do not have the same life that Apostle John had. It can't be. It just can't be. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Apostle Paul writes, I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You don't have to join the government. You don't have to have an official title. You're an ambassador for the highest king and sovereign of the whole universe. The one who's going to judge all of history. Did you know that if you're a Christian, you are an ambassador for Jesus? Why? Why? Why does Apostle Paul keep going out there, keep going out there, keep sharing it, keep spreading it? Why can't he not contain it? Because the love of Jesus Christ compels me, compels me. I came across an old diary, a journal that used to be my favorite in my undergrad years. By the name of David Brainerd, uh, he got kicked out of Yale University for defending the revivals that took place in his day because those revivals actually brought him to faith, to Jesus Christ. It was during the revivals that he heard George Whitfield preach about Jesus and He was converted, so, of course, he was defending it. But at an academic institution like Yale, even back in those days, they were, of course, very snobby about it. And while he defended it, he got kicked out. Well, that was an opportunity for him to become a missionary to Indians, of which he writes that he was often depressed, lonely, and very sickly. And in October of 1747, David Brainerd died at the age of 29, the age of 29. What most people don't know is that David Brainerd was beloved and nursed by the very daughter of the Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, if you're not a Christian or religious scholar, it doesn't matter, but just go look him up on Wikipedia. He's indisputably one of the, one of the greatest philosophers and thinkers and theologians that American Soul has ever produced. Well, David Brainerd, while he was very sick, was nursed by Jerusha, the daughter of Jonathan Edwards, who loved him. And here we get to see theology on fire, theology put to work, what it really looks like in real life. Because, you know, a few months later, after Jerusha nursed David Brainerd, she died from contracting his disease. And the grief-stricken father said of Jerusha that she was, quote, generally esteemed the flower of the family, end quote. And it was Jonathan Edwards who preached at her funeral from the book of Job. Youth is like a flower that is cut down. Jerusha was only 17. And they buried her body next to David Brainerd's. Here's what's remarkable. The father who lost a daughter because of David Brainerd's disease went on to publish his life and diaries. Because Jonathan Edwards found in there something he could not contain. And it is God's great sense of humor that of all the majestic works that Jonathan Edwards ever produced, it is the life and diary of David Brainerd, who could have been his future son-in-law, that has outsold them all. For in one of his journal entries, David Brainerd writes that he was consumed by two great passions in life. Two great passions in life, quote, sanctification in myself and the ingathering of God's elect. Was all my desire, and the hope of its accomplishment, all my joy. David Brainerd was known as outstanding for two great passions in his life. Sanctification in himself. You see, life with God, fellowship with God. He wanted to grow in his life with God. Second, the ingathering of all of God's elect. He couldn't contain it. He had to go. He had to go. He had to go. And he had to have other people experience the life that he had in Jesus Christ. He had to share. He had to He had to have other people taste the joy that he has in life with God. And he needed to get it out there for others. This, he said, was all my desire and the hope of its accomplishment, all my joy. All my joy. Is this you? Is this you? Is this you? Is this you? Is this me? Hey, there's no more important question. You gotta ponder sometimes. No more important question. Is Jesus gonna turn to you after your physical death and say, I know you or hey you, pretend I never knew you. How can you tell? How do you know? Do you have life with God? You gotta have reality experience. You gotta be close enough for fellowship. There needs to be some enjoyment, and it can't be contained. To be sure, there are differing degrees all over the place. To be sure, there are people in this room who are really, really young or really, really middle-aged and it's almost dead or very old. It could be all over the map. But these are common things that every Christian shares. It's called koinonia, fellowship with God, fellowship with others. These are four common things that every Christian shares. At a bare minimum. At a bare minimum. Is it real for you? And as we venture into this book, a short, simple-sounding, simple reading book. Oh, but don't, don't be, don't be deluded. It sounds so simple, but it's so surgical. It is so surgical. And I think I can comprise everyone in this room as you're hearing this message and as we go into First John. Some of you are here. If you're honest enough, thank God you're honest enough. Thank God you're paying attention. Thank God you're listening. You are feeling in your heart, I've always believed in God generally. I know some things about God. I like going to church. In fact, you've gone to church your whole life. But as soon as Apostle John or anyone else talks about, but I have fellowship with God. You're honest enough to say, I've never had that. I don't know what that's like. Good, good. Please continue to come. Other people in this room said, ah, I, I remember a time when I was like that. I remember a time when I was 25. I remember a time when I was 15. I remember when it was hot. I remember when I felt these things. I remember when it was ecstatic. I remember when I would pray and read the Bible for hours. It was like a dream come true. But now it's been so long, I can barely remember it, and I'm not quite sure if I ever had it. Good. Please come along with us. First John is exactly for you. And then there might be some of the people in this room who can't help but wonder, I can't believe I got this. I have fellowship with God and Jesus Christ. I know I have it, and I still have it, and I can't wait to have it again. And this is what I live for. This is my life. This is my joy. And if you have it, I know for sure you're going to resonate with me. You can't wait to get more of it. You want a lot more of it, don't you? First John is for you. So I want to close with this. How can life with God be yours? How can life with God be ours? How do you get this life? How do you get this into your life? If this question bothers you, if this question interests you, provokes you, troubles you in any way, I want to tell you, assuredly, you're only interested because God himself is that interested in you. If this troubles you, sobers you, hmm, discombobulates you, I want to tell you, that's good. That's good. Because John is writing it out of a father's love. And that father's love is nothing compared to God the father's love. Love first must awaken you. Awaken you. Love cannot leave you alone and dead apart from him. Love must come and intrude and awaken you. Do you have life with God? Are you for real? Are you a child of God? If that bothers you, I'm telling you, out of God's love, he's coming to bother you. And the way that you get life with God is by someone else's life, not by mine. The only way you're going to get this fellowship with God and in Jesus Christ, listen, is not by living a good life. That has left you dead. It's by believing in the gospel. The only way that you really get life with God, real life with God, is not by what you do or what you did or what you haven't done. It's by someone else's life, not by mine, not by yours. For Jesus Christ was sent by God the Father who loves. And he lived the perfect life you cannot live. He died the death you and I absolutely deserve. And he was raised on the third day to pour out and send his Holy Spirit. So that you can get life with God. My friend, right now today could be the first day you get life with God. Here's how you do it. Turn from trying to save yourself. Give up on trying to just live a good life for God. And come to Jesus in repentance, turning away from yourself and in faith. And when you come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, Jesus the Son, promises to have reality and experience, fellowship, enjoyment. And contagious joy come rushing in. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this introduction. And I pray that you would do your saving surgical work. Lord, please. Everyone in this room, would you speak to their hearts. That we might be sober and reflective and we might ask, do I really have life with you? And I pray, oh God, that you would provide gospel life in comfort as we respond to you here now. Bring us to Jesus. Lord, bring all my friends to Jesus here as we go through this book of First John. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.